Okay, well, good morning. How's everybody today? Good? I'll teach you a little Texas saying now because, you know, I'm going to slowly but surely make you citizens of the great state. <laughs> so when somebody says, how you doing? You know, a lot of times, sometimes in Texas, you'll hear people respond, I'm finer than frog's hair. <laughs> so that's a good one for you. If you're ever down there, you can break that out. Somebody say, hey, how you doing today? You say, man, I'm finer than frog's hair. It's amazing. Well, uh, in 2007, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Hong Kong, and we, distri- we distributed Bibles there in Macau, and we um, uh, distributed Japanese Bibles to the Japanese tourists that would come in. If you don't know that area, Macau is the Las Vegas of Asia, and it's actually bigger than Las Vegas by revenue. It's not as big as Las Vegas by size, but it's bigger than Las Vegas by revenue. And so people would come there and um, to gamble, and so we were passing out Bibles to the Chinese people that were tourists and to the Japanese people who were tourists and, you know, Filipino people who were tourists and just everybody that came in. And then the last part of that mission trip was that we were going to go We were supposed to go and teach English in Beijing. And so we got on a plane from uh, Guangzhou, which you hear about in the news today every now and then. There's a lot of ships stuck in Guangzhou uh, causing some problems. And we got into Beijing and we went to a university and the missionary there said, well, are you guys native English speakers? And I said, well... I'm from Texas, and I'm not sure that I qualify as a native English speaker, but I'm about to teach these kids some serious language. So if you can get past the accent, uh, I'm Lance. I'm the pastor of adult ministries here. It's my honor to preach today on the first Sunday that Tim is on sabbatical, and we're just praying that his sabbatical is fantastic, that he has a wonderful experience these next three months. And uh, we're going to miss him, but we're going to keep the train on the tracks and keep on moving forward. So this message today is all about God's love. And I want you, when you leave today, okay, when, it, when, when we all dismiss here at about 3 o'clock, <laughs> I want you guys to be able to confidently say when you're walking out the back of that door, I know without a shadow of a doubt that God is absolutely in love with me and that there is absolutely nothing that can separate me from the love of God. That's my goal for today. You know, love is kind of like pinning jello to a wall, isn't it? I mean, we don't have really great words for love. Well, I love my wife, but I love hot dogs, you know? <laughs> It's not super descriptive, but in the Bible, when we talk about love, most of the time in the Bible, we're talking about agape love. This is the kind of love that God has for us. This is the kind of love that God calls us to have for our wives. And this is the kind of loves that moms on this Mother's Day are called to have for their children. It is a self-sacrificial kind of love. It's not a love that's about me, 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 make me happy make me content, make me, the, make me the person that I need to be. It's, it's outwardly focused and not inwardly focused at all. And this is the kind of love that God calls us to have for one another, and it's the kind of love that God says that He has for us. But 
I love the way that kids try to define love. And I heard about this kid named Karen. She's seven years old and she said this. She said, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. Sometimes that happens. I don't know. I've seen stars before. <laughs> Chrissy, who's six years old, says, Love is when you go out to eat and you give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever loved somebody quite that much. <laughs> Carl, who's five year, years old, says, Love is when a girl puts on a perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. Tommy, who's six years old, says love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they get to know each other so well. <laughs> and then my favorite is Jenny, who's eight. She says there are two kinds of love, our love and God's love, but God makes both kinds of love. That's true. You know, one of my favorite we sang great songs this morning. We're so blessed to have this worship team. It's amazing. They do such an awesome job. One of my favorite hymns about the love of God is, is this hymn entitled The Love of God, and it was written in a citrus packing house in California in 1917 by a son of German immigrants. His name was Frederick Lehman. And Frederick was called into the ministry at an early age, and he practiced... Uh, pastoring churches all through the Midwest as he was growing up, as he was transforming himself into a man and as he was um, in his young adulthood. And eventually he ran into a lot of financial problems, a lot of money problems, and so he had to go back to a citrus plant. In 1917, he, re he was in a, the midst of really hard times. He wasn't any longer a pastor, and he wondered, you know, if... He had missed or done something wrong that God's call on his life wasn't what it was before or had he misunderstood. So rather than pastoring churches, he was moving tons of lemons and oranges every day. One day he sat down on an empty lemon crate and he penned the first two verses with a, with a stubby pencil. He said, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell, it goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bow down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure. That's as far as he got. And he knew that most songs had three stanzas of the day. 
And so he sat around and he thought, hmm. He pondered it and pondered it for several days. He would go and he would try to put the first two stanzas to music and play his piano with them. And, but the third stanza just wasn't ever coming to him. And finally, he remembered something that he had heard a pastor say one time in one of his sermons. And he thought it sounded like a great third verse. And so he wrote the third verse. Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every tribe, every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Well, where did that come from? Where did that third verse come from? Where had the pastor heard that third verse? And so he started to kind of dig into it. And he found out that they were inscribed on the wall of an insane asylum by an unknown inmate. I mean, nothing could tell you more about the kind of God that love, the kind of love that God has for his people than for the third verse of one of the most richly sung hymns that we sing in church and have sung for over a hundred years than that that was scrolled on the wall of an insane asylum by an unknown inmate. Now later on they found out that it was part of a poem that had been written during the 11th century by a, name, a man named Meyer Ben Isaac Nahori. But think about it. Inscribed on the wall of an insane asylum by an unknown person except to God. One of the most beautiful stanzas to remind us of how much God loves us. That is the kind of God that you and I serve. Because if there is any people, if there are any group of people in, the, in that time who would have been shunned from society, it would have been those very people, and yet God chose to use that very person, anonymous to all of us, but yet non-anonymous to Him, and maybe that guy had read it or that, that lady had read that somewhere else and he scribed it on a wall, perhaps to remind them that there is hope even in the midst of great despair, perhaps to remind them that there is something to look forward to at some point in their future. Perhaps it was a prayer that they prayed every day to say, God, heal what's happening in my body and heal what is happening in my mind. And yet God used that so that we can all sing about the amazing love of God. If you're here today and you think you're insignificant in any way, know that you're right where God wants you and God can use you. You know who God has trouble using? The rich and powerful people. <laughs> I heard about a, a camp that went on several years ago for athletes with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in North Carolina. 
And there were some big names there. Tom Landry was there. I don't know if you guys remember him, but he's in Texas, about the fourth person of the Trinity. <laughs> Tom Landry was there. Reggie White was there, the great, super great pro bowler from the Philadelphia Eagles and the Green Bay Packers. And they gave their spiel, and Tom Landry got up, and he spoke, and he talked, and he, he ignited the crowd, and then Reggie White got up and spoke and talked and ignited the crowd, and afterwards, the athletes came down to give their lives to Christ. A few of them came down to give their lives to Christ, and my friend was one of the ones that was counseling, and he took his young man, his young athlete, and he took him back to the back, and he said, man, what... You know, what night is it that you got saved? And this guy said, man, I got saved the night Reggie White spoke. And he thought, man, he said, well, what is it that Reggie said that was so powerful? And he said, it wasn't anything that Reggie said. There was a guy in a wheelchair before him that spoke, and I thought, if that guy could have joy, then I want whatever it is that that guy has. Listen, God, I thank God for every great Christian athlete, every great Christian NASCAR driver, Christian movie star. You know, thank God for Christian golfers. Thank God for all of them. But God has to work a little harder to use them than he does to use an average person who is not esteemed in the eyes of the world. That's why the Bible says God uses the weak, right? Well, this passage, that was just an aside. It's not going to cost you anything. But this passage is in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. It is He that condemns. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's from the 44th Psalm. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he asks four questions. The first question is, he said, Paul says, is who can oppose us? He asks this in verse 31, who can be against us? And the answer to that is many people try, but God is for us. Right? We have enemies. The Bible says our enemies are the world, the worldly system of things, the worldly way of things, 
Depends on what that, what that system looks like. Might look a little bit different depending on where you live in the world, right? But for, for Americans or for us, a lot of it has to do with, with being tied to money, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of success at all costs, our individualism, all these kinds of things. It's a way of the world, and then there's the way that God says. There's heavenly wisdom, and then there's earthly wisdom. And then we also know that we're supposed to be concerned about our own flesh because our own flesh leads us astray all the time. I don't know about you, but it's hard to even wake up in the morning even if you go straight to eat breakfast without committing at least one sin at some point. The flesh is powerful and our war within our body, right? The war between what we know we ought to do and what we do is real. And you all experience that on a daily, hourly, minute basis like I do. And then he says we need to be concerned about the devil. But notice what he, one thing that is not included. Each other. My enemy is not my fellow man or woman. Now, I have an enemy in myself, my flesh. I have an enemy in the world's way of doing things. I have an enemy in Satan, but my enemy is not the person who thinks a little bit different than I do. My enemy is not the person who votes a little bit different than I do. My enemy is not the person who doesn't think the same way that I do. My enemy is not the person who's not from the part of the world that I am. That's not included in the list, which ought to change our perspective on a lot of things. That's a different sermon for a different day. There's a lot of th things that happen to oppose the Christian life. And we run up to them all the time but right here in Romans 8.31, it says, If God is for us. In the original language, that means God is for us because God is for us. So I want you to turn to the person on your left and say, God is for you. Go ahead. Listen, that means you and I don't have to fear. We don't have to be in bondage to fear. Fear stops a lot of work from getting done for the kingdom, doesn't it? We fear that mission trip that we think, we, man, we think God wants us to do, but we really fear because it's in that part of the world and we're not sure whether we ought to go or not. We, we fear, you know, I know I should give to this cause or I should do that, but then if I do, what's going to happen with these other concerns that I have? Or I fear, you know, get up in front of people and talking, or I fear prayer. I fear the intimacy of prayer. You I mean, you name it, right? Our fears roll on and on and on and on and on. But the Bible says here, he's saying, you don't have to be afraid of anything in the world. You don't have to be afraid of anything that the flesh or the devil can throw at you. And there is freedom in that kind of life. And listen, none of us have arrived, me included. I'm the first one to raise my hand and say, I still struggle with fear. I struggle with fear every time I preach. I struggle with fear every time I see a snake. I struggle with fear on, you know, all the time. I struggle with fear when my daughters were teenagers, you know, not knowing what was coming through that door. I struggle with it. Listen, if that's, a, that's there. But we also have, we also, because we have the flesh, right? And the flesh is tells us fear, 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 fear. 
But then we have God saying, God says, do not fear. I have a pastor friend that's in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and on the outskirts of Detroit, and his family moved there from the south a number of years ago, and he had a son named David, and David was a small kid and nervous about going to a new school. And sure enough, he went to school in Ypsilanti, and some of the tougher kids decided they were going to pick on him. And they absolutely made every day at school horrible for my pastor's son. They told him they were going to stake his shirt, beat him up and take his lunch money, you name it. This went on for several weeks. And my pastor and his wife, man, they prayed and prayed and prayed about the situation did everything that they thought humanly possible they could do to try to make David's life just a tiny bit better. Finally, this kid named Mike heard what was happening. And Mike went to my pastor's, my friend pastor's church. Well, Mike was like the opposite of David. He was like the freak athlete of the school. He was the big kid, the popular kid. He went up to those kids and he confronted them face to face and he said, let me tell you something. If you bother David one more time, I mean, I even so much, if you look at him cross-eyed, you're going to have to deal with me. Guess what happened the next day with my pastor's son? He got up. He had a whole new attitude about going to school. All of a sudden, he was confident. He was excited about it. Pastor asked him, he said, well, what's, what's the deal? And he said, hey, man, Dad, he said, if Mike is on, is on my side, then I don't have to worry about anybody else. Now, you take that and multiply it by a billion. And God is saying, I am on your side. You don't have to worry about all that other stuff. How do we know that God is being serious when he says that? How do we know that he really has our backs, that he really is going to defend us, that he really is there for us, that he really does love us in that same kind of way? How do we know? Well, he says it in the next, in verse 32, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I mean, when, when God is giving you the best, what else is he going to withhold? Now, today's Mother's Day, and I hope that, you know, you're treated the way that you deserve to be treated, and you have a fantastic, wonderful, awesome day. But just suppose for a minute that I gave Becky a diamond necklace, right? And that thing, you know, because, listen, I'm going to tell you the kind of guy I am, all right? I bought that thing at Goodwill, okay? <laughs> and it was beautiful. And it looks absolutely fantastic because that's the kind of guy I am, Right? And I give this necklace to her, and it's in a beautiful box, and it's, it's offset beautifully with the black and 
the diamonds just sparkle, the cubic zirconium diamonds just sparkle. And she says, oh man, Lance, I love that necklace. Thank you so much. And she takes it, but she takes the box. And I tell her, listen, I can't have that box. And she's like, why? And I said, well, I mean, look here, I paid, you know, X amount of dollars for that necklace, and you can have the necklace, but you can't have the box. Well, what are you going to do with the box? Well, I'm going to throw the box away, but you can't have the box. How foolish is that? Like, if you love somebody enough, if you think about somebody enough, that you're going to drive all the way down to Goodwill to buy them a necklace, and you're going to give them that diamond necklace, you are not going to withhold the box. And God is saying, I have given you my most precious possession in Jesus, and you're concerned that I'm going to withhold the box. So he says, that's how much I'm for you. The second question is, who can accuse us? Verse 33 says, who will bring any charge against you? And the answer is, Satan, of course, accuses, but God excuses Right? Satan accuses us all the time. But God excuses us. He forgives us. He justifies us. Satan's name in Hebrew means slanderer. He is our accuser. Look at Revelation 12, verse 10. For the accuser, Satan, of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Now that's in Revelation 12, and a lot of people think, man... Satan is in hell right now, and he's having a terrible time. Well, the answer is Satan is not in hell right now. He is able to freely roam the earth. Now, Satan does not have godlike qualities. He cannot be in every place in every time. He, is low, he can only be in one place at one time but he has his minions to do things for him as well. And the Bible says when you go in and you think about Joel or you think about Job in Job chapter 1, the Bible says God was in heaven and all the angels, both good angels and fallen angels were appearing before God. And God turned to the devil and he said, "What have you been doing?" And the devil says, "Well, I've been going up and down throughout the whole earth." just like he does today. He roams about, the Bible says, like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? What a great man he is. And Satan says, man, you, you blessed him so much. That's why he's a good man. You take away all those blessings. You take away all the blessings that you give him, and he, he'll, he'll curse you just like anybody else would. And that's what the devil does to us. He accuses us before God. Right now, you or I might be the target of his accusations. He might be saying, listen to that person. What are they, what are they, do, what are they doing praying? What, what, what are they doing singing hymns of praise? 
that person is a dirty, rotten scoundrel. You ought to see what that guy does on Mondays. You ought to see what that girl does on Mondays. What are they doing? But listen, there's also something else that Satan does that's even perhaps more sinister and more powerful. And that is he accuses us to us. You're called to do something. You wake up one day and feel like you might want to go to church. And Satan says what? You're a dirty, rotten scoundrel. You walk through the doors of that church and the whole building is going to cave in. You walk through the doors of that church and you're going to be rejected. You walk through the doors of that church and they're going to be able to tell what kind of person you are. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. You walk through, through the doors of that church and you're going to get turned away. He accuses us to us. And a lot of times we go, I think he's right. I had a friend that was, when I passed, planted a church in central Washington. And he hadn't come to church for a long time. And so I went, I knew he'd had a lot of personal problems. And so I went to check on him. And he says to me, he says, I get to church most Sundays. He said, I sit out in the parking lot, but I just can't work up the courage to come in. Do you know how hard it is? Or have you considered how hard it is for a person who does not go to church here to work up the courage to walk into this building? Because it is a, they're in the midst of a spiritual warfare in the parking lot about whether they're ever even going to get out of the car to dare enter into the building. In the late 18th century, there was a prostitute who picked up a track. She read the track about God's love for her. So she decided to go to church. Yeah, she got on the best clothes that she had. She took her two children with her, neither of whom knew. She didn't know either one who the father was. She took the two, her two children to her with her to church in the finest clothes that she could cobble together. And when she got into that church in London in the 18th century, the women were kind of staring at her and the men were kind of staring at her. And the pastor eventually walked up to her and he said, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. He said, we, we just don't, we don't have people like you here. And she said to him, where can a sinner go? Imagine. And so she left. And we know her story because she went to the Salvation Army, received Christ as her Savior, and became one of the leaders of the Christian movement in London. But the mistake that she made, right, is... She didn't make a mistake that she believed that God was loving. The mistake that she made is she believed that all God's people were loving. 
I visited a church in Texas that I used to go to, and there were, I would say, 400 people in attendance on that Sunday. And 399 of them never even said hello or shook my hand or anything. And I was obviously a visitor. I mean, I live 2,000 miles away. It's not like they'd seen me at McDonald's. And that's not bad on that church, but what I'm saying is this. Wouldn't you rather be part of 399 who make a mistake of accidentally shaking somebody's hand and telling them that you're glad that they're here, even though they've been at this church for 20 years, than you had be part of the, one, of the 399 who just ignore a person that they've never seen and don't bother to shake their hand, even though we understand that they've been involved in spiritual warfare out there in their car to even work up enough courage to come through the doors of the church. We can't, we, and I don't mean us, I'm saying the church, universal, we can't be those people. We have to show people who read the track that the track is the truth and that God's people are going to love them in the same way that God loves them. And if we don't, we might as well be a Kiwanis club because we're sure not doing the message of God or the work of God. And that means putting, put, taking our blinders off to people who don't look like us, act like us, think like us, and talk like us, and just loving people wherever they're at. Well, the third question is, who can condemn us? This is crazy. All right. Yes, thanks. <laughs> Who can condemn us? The answer is Jesus could, but instead, He's praying for us. Verse 34 says, Who is He that condemns? And the answer is Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. For those of us who are in Christ, He's not condemning us. Instead, the Bible says He's praying for us. And if, God, if Jesus is praying for me, then what can anybody do to stop Him from doing it or to stop it from being effective? If you are in Christ, there's never going to be any condemnation. Now listen, because this is going to make you want to slap your mama. Noah's Ark is a huge foreshadow of this truth. Right? God's judgment came as a flood. Noah builds the ark. He's obedient to God. He builds the ark. He does the things he's supposed to do to get the ark, and he builds the ark, and then he brings the animals on. And then what happens to all the people in the ark when the flood comes? They're saved. What happens to all the people who are not in the ark when the flood comes? They're condemned. Do you see? The ark is a picture of Jesus. Everybody who's outside the ark perishes. It's simple. 
You are either in the ark or you are out of the ark. You are either in Jesus or you are out of Jesus. If you are in the ark, nothing is going to condemn you. You have no reason to fear condemnation. If you're out of the ark, you do have reason because the flood is going to eventually come. Satan is like a prosecuting attorney, right? Pointing his finger. Look how bad this person is. Look how bad that person is. And then Jesus prays, and he's our, he's our advocate. He's our defense attorney. And he says, you know what? Uh, I don't think so. Because that person is in me. So you can't touch him. He's in the ark. She's in the ark. They're in me, and that is not dependent on how good I am or how bad I am, right? You talk about trying to pin jello to a wall. Try defining what a good person is. If there's 300 people in this room, there's 300 different opinions. If you could be good enough to get to heaven, then how in the world would you ever know if you became bad? And what kind of God wouldn't tell you when you switched over from being good to bad? Like, is it a thousand sins that I become bad? Is it a million sins that I become bad? At what point am I no longer good, now I'm bad? And then what kind of terrible God would say, I'm not even going to tell you the number? So that way you'll never know. So the best you've got when you die is cross your fingers. That's what Islam teaches. Cross your fingers. Even Muhammad said, I don't know that I'm going to heaven. <laughs> that leaves us with the fourth and final point here. Our Salvation and the security of our salvation are bound up in Jesus interceding for us, which brings us to the fourth question, who or what can separate us? Who can separate us? Who can separate us from the love of God? That word, that word in Greek is a word that means to chop off. It means to cut off. It'd be like saying our word amputate. What then, Paul says, can amputate us from the love of of God. This is ridiculous. <laughs> ah. What well, can separate us? Paul gives us several categories for things that are unable to separate us. And the first one is Jesus' love is not broken by emotional factors. That, that word that he uses there, trouble or hardship, the word trouble means inner pressure. Do you ever feel a ton of inner pressure? Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's, you know, a strained relationship. Maybe it's that you have a moral conundrum and you don't know what to do. It's, it's inner pressure. Maybe it's discouragement. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's 
jealousy. Maybe you've got an outlandish temper and you have a hard time controlling it and you feel that inner pressure. And the Bible says that that inner pressure cannot separate you from the love of God. But sometimes when we feel that inner pressure, we ask ourselves, does God love me? If he did, why would I feel this? And Paul is saying, even when you feel that inner pressure, even when you feel that inner pain, it cannot amputate you from the love of God. The second word that he uses there is hardship, and that means outer pressure. It's literally like being stuck between two rocks. It's where we get our phrase between a rock and a hard place from, is from this idea in the Greek. It's inner pressure, and then Paul says, outer pressure can't separate you from the love of God. Divorce can't separate you from the love of God. Losing your job can't separate you from the love of God. Pressure from your family members can't separate you from the love of God. Pressure from finances cannot separate you from the love of God. The Bible says even, even the worst pressure, even when both of these pressures are happening at the same time and you feel that intense inner pressure and then you also feel that intense outer pressure, he's saying, friends, none of those things can amputate you from God's love. Then he uses another category. He says, Jesus' love is not broken by physical factors. Even physical pain cannot amputate us from God's love. Look at the next few words that he uses there. He says, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. He says, even these physical threats cannot separate you from the love of God. Why do Christians suffer? Well, the answer is everybody suffers. The, question, the answer to the question, why do good people suffer, is there are no good people. But theological volumes and volumes have been written on the question of human suffering. But A.W. Tozer wrote it like this. He says, it was the enraptured Rutherford who would shout, in the midst of sorrow and painful times. Praise God for the hammer. The hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had feeling and intelligence, could present another side of the story. For the nail only knows the hammer as an opponent, a brutal, merciless enemy who lives to pound it into submission to beat it down out of sight and to clinch it into place. That is the nail's view of the hammer. And it is accurate except in one thing. The nail forgets that both it and the hammer are servants in the hand of the same workman. Let the nail but remember that the workman holds the hammer and all the resentment toward it will disappear. The carpenter decides whose head shall be beaten next and what hammer shall be used in the beating. That is his sovereign right. When the nail has surrendered to the will of the carpenter, 
and has gotten a little glimpse of his benign plans for the future, it will yield to the hammer without complaint. Now listen, you may be here today and you feel like you're hammered in physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. And Paul is saying, even in all of that, nothing in that can amputate you from the love of God. Verse Psalm 44, Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered in all of these things. That's, the, that's a great word. It's a combination of the word hypernike. Nike is the Greek word for victory, and it's right out of the Bible. And this is the word that means super conquerors. He says you are a super victor. He says you are more than conquerors over all these things. But the key is through him who loved us. So there's emotional pain, there's physical pain. And then he says, Jesus' love is not broken by earthly factors. Verse 38, he says, death nor life, present nor the future, nor height nor depth. He's saying that even death cannot separate us from the love of God. The death, in fact, ushers us into the presence of God. I heard about a man that was having his tombstone prepared, and he said, I don't want you to put on there the date that I was born and the date that I died. He said, what I want you to do is put on there the date I was born again. And then next to that, put the date that I was transferred to heaven. I like that. Death cannot separate you. Life cannot separate you. He uses a couple of words. He says, neither height nor depth. The word height means the highest pinnacle on earth. The word depth is his word bathos. The deepest part of the ocean is the bathosphere. He says, even the deepest part of the ocean to the highest pinnacle of earth cannot separate you from the love of God. He says, no earthly factor can. Nothing that you experience in your time on earth can separate you from the love of God. Now, I want you to internalize that because I'm almost done. I want you to internalize that and think about that and go, man, tomorrow, whatever it is that I face, this afternoon, whatever it is that I face, this week, whatever it is that I face, whether it's inner pressure, whether it's outer pressure, whether I'm the hammer, whether I'm the nail, that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. He says, finally, Jesus' love is not broken by heavenly factors. Not just earthly things. He says, eternal things can't even separate you from the love of God. He even talks about there are no angels nor demons that can separate you from the love of God. Then he says in verse 39, anything else in all creation. Now, that's an interesting word. It's a word that means other created things. In other words, he's saying there is nothing in God's creation, things that we know and things that we don't know, things that we might learn about in a thousand years, things that we might never learn about even if we live to be a million years. There is absolutely nothing out there that can possibly separate you from the love of God. Here's an interesting paraphrase of this passage. It says, God, I may fall flat on my face, 
I may fail until I feel old and beaten and done in. Yet your love for me is changeless. All the music may go out of my life. My private world may shatter to dust. Even so, you will hold me in the palm of your steady hand. No turn in the affairs of my fractured life can baffle you. Satan, with all of his braggadocio, cannot distract you. Nothing can separate me from your measureless love. Pain can't. Disappointment can't. Anguish can't. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow can't. The loss of my dearest love can't. Death can't. Life can't. Riots, wars, insanity, and identity, hunger, neuroses, disease, none of these things, nor all of them heaped together, can budge the fact that I am dearly loved, completely forgiven, and forever free through Christ Jesus, your beloved Son. Nothing. I want to close by just asking you to Put yourself in Paul's sandals for just a minute. You know, we read in Romans 8, we read that word sword in verse 35. And we read it over just like sword because we're in 2022 in a safe country. But in Paul's day, when he writes this passage of Scripture, thousands of people are facing execution, and they would read the word sword entirely different than we read the word sword. Sometimes young teenagers were put in leather bags filled with snakes and scorpions, and they were tied around their neck. And Paul is saying, even if you go into a bag and it is tied around your neck, with snakes and scorpions, that cannot separate you or amputate you from the love of God. Other Christians would be tied to a bull and then a mountain lion, and the bull would fight. And during the course of the fight, the believer would simply be torn apart. And Paul is saying to them, when they're, when they're reading this, and they know that those methods of execution are there, Paul is saying, even if you are tied to the horns of a bull, it will not separate you from the love of God. In some of the early writings, you hear this reference in the first century of virgin martyrs. And I wondered about that for a long time. Why were they called virgin martyrs? And I did some research, and I found that the emperor Tiberius decreed years before that a virgin could not be put to death. Because even in that pagan, godless culture, they still revered that virtue. But why then are they called martyrs? If the virgins couldn't be put to death, then why are they called martyrs? And the answer is that when the Roman soldiers would come into town, they would make sure that there were no virgins left in the town so that they could slaughter them all. 
And what Paul is saying is even when they take you and they do the worst things that you can imagine, God's love is still there. Paul himself was put into the Mamertine prison in Rome and he was an old man. And after he had written the letter of 2 Timothy, he heard at some point the footsteps of a Roman soldier coming down the hall one day and they opened the door and they pulled him out and the historical writings tell us they took him out into the sunrise. They laid him on a block and a big Roman soldier lifted up a long sword. And I can imagine that Paul looked up at that sword and he must have remembered these words when he wrote, famine, nakedness, or even a sword cannot separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord, swish, clunk. And in the very next second, nanosecond, Paul was looking into the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, if the sack over your head cannot amputate you from the love of God, if being tied to a bull and torn apart cannot amputate you to the love, from the love of God, if horrible, despicable acts that were done to these poor young ladies cannot amputate you from the love of God, and if you're being beheaded cannot amputate you from the love of God, then friend, nothing can amputate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that you're considering, whatever it is that has got your goat that is bugging you, whatever it is that's a trial or a tribulation that you're facing tomorrow or the next day, or it may be a year out, you can rest assured and know that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 